1: and Welcome to What You Miss This Week. I'm Joe Weisenthal. This is the podcast that has the best and most interesting interviews from the daily market close show that I co anchor with Scarlett Fu and Julia Cheddarly on Bloomberg Television called What You Miss. Our aim is to take you beyond the headlines and bring you unique perspectives on the week's top stories and, well, those that you may have just missed. It's the perfect way to kick off your weekend. Jay Powell headed to Capitol Hill to give lawmakers his semi-annual update and stressed that he wanted to, quote, stay in his lane, unquote, and out of politics. But before the week was done, Jay Powell was unwittingly dragged into a political mess by the very president who appointed him. President Trump made market-moving headlines when he said he was not thrilled by the Fed's interest rate hikes. To figure out just how big of a deal this break from precedent really was, we talked with the man who wrote the book on the history of the Fed, literally. Peter Conti Brown, a Fed historian at the Wharton School, came on to explain why these comments from President Trump are more important than they seem.
2: For decades after the Fed's founding and until the early 1990s, presidents grumpy with the Fed's uh, policy decisions hadn't, hadn't been shy about making comments on those. And the last to do this in a direct way was President uh, George H.W. Bush In his 1991 State of the Union address, he essentially demanded that the Fed raise interest rates. Uh, And that didn't go so well for him, Uh, sorry, that the Fed lower interest rates. The Fed didn't do that, Uh, Bush lost the election, and the Clinton economic team reflected on their relationship to the Fed and created that rule, that norm of presidential non-interference. That norm stayed for about 25 years
1: uh obviously members of the fomc fed chairs they're all human and they would all insist that they would never let politics uh ever influence their decisions nonetheless we know they prize their independence uh quite highly is it plausible you think that when a uh, president makes comments about don't do this or do this that it could backfire and produce the opposite result
2: well, I think it's very plausible. I don't think it's likely at all that the you know, a soft criticism like this would cause the Fed to, sure. to fold. Uh, the, the bigger chance, as you say, is that the Fed overreacts and says, well, if that's what you think, we're going to uh, accelerate our, our rate normalization process much more than we think is prudent. I don't think that's likely either, although that, that risk is there. The bigger issue is that the perceptions of what the Fed will do uh, in, uh, in, in consequence of this kind of criticism uh, is, are going to be extremely difficult for the Fed to control and very important, both in markets and in political campaigns and boardrooms and in newsrooms.
0: Yeah, it just adds another variable for investors, for the Fed, for everyone to watch, uh, especially as the Federal Reserve is trying to get monetary policy back to normal, back to a normal, boring kind of uh, situation. What happens, uh, Professor Conte Brown, if the president actually comes out and just asks the Fed to not raise rates anymore? Rather than saying he's disappointed, he actually makes a request. How would the Fed respond?
2: So this is why I think today's Uh, uh, Interview is much more important than it might seem It was just a couple of sentences But President Trump is not responding to any market correction He's not responding to sluggish Mm. or negative growth Uh, And so when we do have those things I think the Fed is going to get the same treatment That journalists have gotten from the president That the FBI has gotten That some judges have gotten And that's going to be essentially a publicity war The Fed does not come out uh, uh, well in those wars. Even a victory would be a Pyrrhic victory because the Fed depends so much for its legitimacy on uh, public regard for it. So that will be devastating if the president Mm -hmm. takes 85% of Republicans with him in denigrating and trashing uh, the Fed's institutional identity.
3: Uh, Just one more quick question, uh, Professor. I'm sorry. Um, What about, as you say, if he takes most Republicans with him? I mean, with the other institutions that he has attacked, he has mostly been supported by his party and supported by, uh, therefore, the majority of Congress. But what about the Fed? Is the Fed different? Traditionally, has the Congress been supportive of the Fed's independence?
2: You know, the partisan coalitions that support A Fed raising interest rates have historically been more identified with the Republican Party than the Democratic Party. That is to say, those establishment Republicans like bankers, community bankers or large bankers or others have said, you know what, we want to respect the Fed's independence. But 2008 did a funny thing for those Mm -hmm. partisan alignments. And today I think the political climate is much more hostile to the Fed within Republican circles than Democratic ones. So we might be seeing a rare uh, political realignment around monetary policy that only happens once every few generations. And President Trump would certainly accelerate that.
1: Then we caught up with Jens Nordvig, Exante Data founder and CEO, about Powell's two days of congressional testimony and his increased transparency as chair. Jens also told us why, despite the flattening yield curve, he still sees plenty of stimulus down the pipeline
4: i think we've moved into a regime where like the new communication around the fed is so like tiny adjustments around the trend where we know we're getting essentially the quarterly rate hikes so i don't think there was anything dramatic and also like you can see it's two basis points here two basis points there uh, the big the big deal is really um i think a lot of investors are starting to look further ahead quite a few are starting to talk about okay the recession is coming 2020 the yield curve is having a certain slope because of that expectation. That I think is the key. Are we going to get data that is going to be strong enough to really say, okay, that prediction is just too early, and that could lead to the yield curve steepening again, and essentially the whole yield curve shifting higher. That I think is the debate that is going on right now. And if we have a period of stronger data, I think that narrative will will have to be pushed into the background. And
3: and as we get uh, these various data points, you know, it seems as though Jay Powell is trying to be as transparent as possible. Not only did he talk today, he gave uh, an interview, which is fairly rare, has been fairly rare for a sitting Fed chief. Is there such a thing as too much transparency? Before, there were always complaints about not enough.
4: Yeah, well, uh, certainly in my company, we had these discussions where we said, okay, Did he just say that Yellen would never been that specific, right? So uh, he certainly has a different uh, way of communicating and and, a different degree of transparency, including on the stuff he doesn't know. He's willing to say, "Okay, we don't really know. We're just looking at the data that comes in. Uh, So, so far, that hasn't really moved the market. But there could be an occasion where he's so transparent that it creates some volatility, uh, especially, obviously, if the data picture gets more uncertain. Right now we're essentially meeting the dual mandate, right? We, we have unemployment where they want, inflation where they want, right? So it's when they get the deviations that, that gets more tricky for them.
0: Yeah, I wonder to what extent he's trying to make monetary policy as boring as possible again, <laughs> because for so many years it's been out there because we've, we've treaded into uncharted territory. Now he's trying to bring it back to something where it's not making headlines day in and day out. You talked about the yield curve and how people are looking out to, say, 2020 and, and predicting a recession. Are we, or are people coming up with the narrative to explain why the yield curve continues to flatten. I feel like the yield curve has been flattening long before we started hearing whispers of recession in 2020.
4: Yeah, I think that's right. So uh, I I met with a, a number of investors in Europe over the last couple of weeks. And there it was sort of the big story, okay, we need to position for this uh, recession that's coming, right? Uh, But there's also some backfitting going on, which is implicit what you're saying, okay, the the curve has that shape. Maybe it's because European yields are still negative, like long out the curve, that that's dragging the curve down, right? There's a lot of external factors that influences the the shape. Uh, I certainly think it's difficult to say, okay, in the past, this uh, shape of the curve has predicted a recession. I don't think it works like that. Uh, I think the the very simple point I will make is that we have fiscal stimulus in the pipeline. Both the tax cuts and the spending is going to get more juice, so to say, in the second half relative to the first half. So it's kind of hard to see any data slowing. And in addition, we know that the fiscal stimulus is going to get more. So I just think the data is more likely to be robust than not. We, we haven't talked about the trade discussion that you have well, with the previous discussion, I, that's, so that's the wild card. Ask, well,
3: that's what I want to ask you about. and uh, in particular, I'm very happy about that. I thought we missed the trade discussion. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> the but I want to ask you about China as well, because, of course, we just got some economic data from China that shows a slowing of growth there. I'm curious to ask you not just about the trade effect on the U.S., but the trade effect on China. China as well. If they're already slowing and we have this trade war going on, is that going to exacerbate the issue there and then feed back into demand? for U.S. products, trade war, no trade
4: war. Yeah, well, we have something very interesting going on in China. Uh, like uh, we, we like to pull up the two-year rates here for the United States, right? But if you look at the two-year rates in China, they touched 4% last year when the economy was doing quite well, and now we're at 3%, right? So we have like a very dramatic divergence between what's going on in U.S. yields and what's going on in Chinese yields, and that clearly reflects some kind of concern that the economy is slowing there, that the trade, the tension is clearly not going to help. And I think, even from a political perspective, this is something that could feed into a very unusual dynamic, if the Chinese policymakers can say, "Okay, the economy is slowing, because some nasty stuff happened because of what the U.S. is doing." That's kind of like a scapegoat me- mechanism where you can perhaps get away with the economy's uh, slowing and not take political blame for it. So I think that's the sort of trajectory we have to to, to keep uh, an open mind towards. And, frankly speaking, we've had like incredible credit growth in China since 2009 like it wouldn't be a huge surprise if at some point it's hard to keep it going right so maybe that's what's kicking in now you can see the interest rates already kind of predicting that they're also letting the currency move like if they were extremely worried about okay overstimulating the economy and so forth they wouldn't let the currency move like they're doing so a lot of signs pointing the same direction I think
0: you talk about people uh, wanting to position for a possible recession 2020 to what extent do you see the positioning uh, in a, a protracted trade war here. I, I ask because there's a Bloomberg News story today on the terminal about how there's a two-speed market among emerging market currencies. The EMEA Latin American currencies gained this month while Asian currencies fell. And the correlation between Asian currencies and the rest of EM currencies is now the lowest since January. Mm-hmm. Are people out there picking winners or are they just trying to avoid losers?
4: Mm. Yeah, I think, uh, I think that's a very good observation. Uh, we, we have a pretty unusual situation where We've had some significant weakness around China and the currency has really had a, had a pretty notable move. Korea had a similar type of move. So there's something going on around North Asia where we really have some pretty pronounced underperformance. And that could potentially extend if we have another sort of escalation of the, the trade tension. So I think that's a big theme and it's something that's a very big difference from, from the story that we had going into this year. Yes. Going into this year it was a story about, okay, global growth is great, uh, risk assets are gonna do fine, and now we suddenly have actually the opposite. Okay, if China's really slowing, if it's dragging down uh, the rest of Asia, that really is gonna put a question mark around global growth, and that's, that's just really important for a lot of assets.
1: We also had a debate about President Trump's trade war. Are markets being too complacent about tariffs or are they too glued to the headlines? Terry Haynes, Evercore ISI senior political strategist, and Peter Cheer, Academy Securities head of macro strategy, both weighed in.
5: We think this is very serious that there is a real risk that we continue to push for a trade war. And we think we're going to start seeing some economic impact. And it's not going to hit the large companies first. It's going to hit smaller companies. Small and mid-sized companies are going to be hit by these. They're going to have more trouble reacting to it. So it might take a little bit of time for it to hit the data, but it will be real. And it's going to impact economies. Again, where large companies may be able to deal with the trade wars and shift you know, assets around as need be, I think it's going to be these smaller companies who have been responsible for about 70% of job growth in the U.S. that get hit first.
3: Uh, Terry, I want to bring you into this uh, because obviously we have not seen that much market reaction yet uh, on the whole uh, to all of this, uh, whether you're looking at stocks or at bonds here which have pretty much moved sideways. Um, And there are some signs, some signals perhaps that there are talks going on. There's a report today that the EU uh, may be softening some of the auto tariff stances. So what do you think the chances are here that we don't get a worst case scenario?
6: Today, Julie, I think the chances are reasonably good that we don't get a worst-case scenario. Uh, but, I'm, but I'm not being sanguine about that. My view is that you get, uh, you, on the U.S.-China front, I think you get an inflection point by the end of July. And the reason I, I picked the end of July is because that's when the next six, $16 billion in tariffs are scheduled to go forward. If we don't have talks before then, if we don't have some indication uh, that the United States and China are going to begin to, to re-engage and and negotiate in earnest, uh, then I think my view changes somewhat. Uh, but over the next couple of weeks, I think uh, that's less likely. Uh, to your point about the European Union and Canada and Mexico and sort of the the non-Chinese issues, uh, I tend to look at those as uh, as much more short-term issues. The United States government does not do a great job of 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 Talking about why it's doing what it's doing, but but you can you can easily find out publicly uh, why they're doing what they're doing. doing and uh, by and large what they want is more cooperation on the metals issues Uh, and they want, as the administration officials said, as uh, Secretary uh, Treasury Secretary Mnuchin said last week on the Hill uh, what they want ultimately are lower tariffs, and there are some there's some evidence, uh, that, including what you point out, uh, lowering tariffs on automobiles, uh, that that message is starting to get through uh, in, in a lot of countries. Uh, so right now, I think what we're going to have is we're going to continue to have you know trade war in the sense that the status quo will be disturbed. But right now, I think for the next few weeks, I think it's very it's unlikely that uh, what we get is the worst case scenario.
0: Peter, you point out, though, that typically what happens in Washington, or there's this belief among investors that the president can be checked by the rest of the government, Congress, for instance. But uh, this summer, you are you have a Washington, D.C. that's preoccupied with the midterm elections, gearing up for it. And uh, there's not a lot to push back against right. President Trump. Not only
5: do you have the midterm elections, you've got the uh, Supreme Court nomination. So I think Washington's not as focused. And people look at the market, say the market's not reacting much, so this is fine. We can let this trade war go on. I think it's a mistake. I think we become too complacent, whether it was starting with Brexit and how easy these things were to fix. I think this is very different. I take today as a sign when Japan and the EU struck a deal that there's a real risk that some of our actions and some of our comments affecting our you know, allies will come back to hurt us and, you know, quite frankly bite us as people start trying to strike trade deals away from us. So I think we've got to be very careful. We've got to make sure we fit into the world power. And I don't think this is a well-controlled message coming out of D.C. right now. I think we've bitten off more than we can chew. We're, you know, Russian summits. We've got North Korea, which is unclear where that's headed. So many things going on. I think the risk of a mistake and getting far worse than we expected by the end of the summer is real.
3: I mean, what does far worse look like, though? We talked to the chief economist yesterday at Vanguard, Peter, and he said, you know, we're talking about maybe a couple tenths of a percentage point hit to GDP?
5: I think that would be the starting point, but the reality is we have had small businesses do so well the tax cuts help small businesses I think they're gonna get hurt and it's going to cause some disruptions also large companies are gonna be able to adapt to this right they'll say oh if I do this or this there and they'll start moving the pieces around I don't see how that benefits the US economy right if the goal of trade wars is to actually bring more jobs and better income here I think it's actually gonna have the exact opposite effect so we'll derail a lot of the benefits we've seen from the tax cuts and we will hurt the economy and that will then pass into the markets
0: Terry, uh, Peter brings up a good point when he says that there are all these other issues thrown into the mix as well. How confident are you that the U.S. is negotiating trade uh, deals as trade on its own versus pulling in other issues, like North Korea when you're talking about a trade deal with China, or uh, like immigration when you're talking about a deal potentially with Mexico? I mean, to what extent can trade be negotiated on its own versus and, and, and kept separate from these other thorny issues?
6: Well, there's, uh, look, the it's never the case that issues reside completely in silos, isolated from every other issue. Uh, it, and, and a good example of that is, I, I, I think, and I've written, that uh, the North Korea issue con- uh, continues to be indirectly linked to the trade issue, I think, as long as China... Uh, maintains and then keeps up the pressure on its client state, North Korea, uh, to denuclearize. I think uh, they have a chance of uh, getting marginally better conditions on trade than they would otherwise. Uh, there's no, been no recent discussion of that out of the United States government, but the, the President himself uh, linked those two issues up some time ago. Uh, that said, though, I think there, there are real focuses on trade, and what, what I think investors need to understand is that the Trump administration and the Congress, by and large, are united on the goals here. Uh, of wanting a fairer deal for intellectual property in China, for USIP in China, on wanting an end to the uh, to the metals uh, issues, uh, and and controlling that in a way that allows us to maintain a domestic metals issue in the United States, the disagreements are on tactics. Yeah. And so far, the uh, so far there hasn't been a uh, critical mass around wanting to uh, in Congress about wanting to reverse the president or the administration on tactics. I do think that. If If the president goes forth on uh, and tries to impose uh, auto tariffs, I think that may actually be a bridge too far for Congress. Uh, You saw a little bit of that last week in the Senate. Uh, I think some recent remarks by House Ways and Means Chairman Brady uh, indicating uh, exactly that uh, tend to dovetail into my own analysis here uh, that uh, whatever autos are, they're not national security related and uh, Congress may well take back some of its tariff power here.
1: Then Scarlett interviewed Erica Nardini, CEO of Barstool Sports, about why she says the more than 15-year-old brand is more like a two-year-old startup and how their brand finds people where they live these days on the internet.
7: Dave built a phenomenal brand, and when I got to Barstool two years ago, there were under 15 employees. They lived in Boston primarily, and since then, we have built a real juggernaut business, and that's really why I call it, you know, in some respects, we are a two-year-old business. Mm. We're a 15-year-old brand. Ah, okay. That makes that two-year-old business very possible. You know, what, what makes Barstool very different is we don't have any legacy, so we're building a company the way I believe a company should look. Mm-hmm. in 2018 and 2019 with a brand that's been loved since the early 2000s.
0: And right now, that business creates 200 pieces of content daily, which is just incredible. Um, talk about the best platform you've found for discovery versus retaining your audience versus, say, creating influence. Sure. So, you know, we
7: are a platform that is built primarily on a blog. So BarstoolSports.com is the epicenter of where anything and everything for Barstool uh, transacts, where it happens we also have you know a massive podcasting business We have incredible social reach with over 700 social accounts. We have a great Snapchat show on Snapchat. We love Instagram, so we look to manage, you know, really three things simultaneously. We manage and create content. We create conversation with our audiences around that content, and then we make commerce experiences that make the conversation more interesting and the brand more relevant. So and, which is the best for a keeping your audience versus finding keeping your our audience is our own platform, and that's one of the biggest things that Barstool brings to bear, which is that we have our own audience. They are loyal to Barstool Mm -hmm. and we're able to retain them. They spend on average between 20 and 45 minutes a day with us. They're visiting many, many, many times a day. Now, Twitter is a great platform for discovery Mm -hmm. and we live on Twitter. So all of the conversation around anything that happens at Barstool lives on Twitter. Uh, And we find that Instagram and Snapchat
0: are deep engagement uh, platforms for video. So now, to what extent does Barstool grow with its audience? I mean, track men's journey from college into their 30s, marriage and kids, and eventually into middle age. How specifically do you accomplish that through your content?
7: Great question. So, you know, we're a brand that is very elastic and very dynamic. So we have an audience that, you know, is 14 years old all the way through 49 years old. Uh, We find that there's a core audience that loves us via the blog. We also have a huge, vibrant audience on Instagram that's probably never seen 90% of what we do in podcasting or on that blog. So what we really serve to do is to make our audience laugh. We're a comedy brand. We want to find people where they're living today on the internet and to be able to appeal to them there. So we may find very young fans on Snapchat, which is what happens for us. We may have older fans who love us in audio, on the radio, or in in our blog. Mm -hmm. And we look to super serve each audience in each place. You
0: have a very loyal audience and you've talked about how sticky it is. What would change that relationship? Does the changing political environment, whether it's the Me Too movement, left versus right, fake news, Does that show up in the content and and add stress to this relationship?
7: You know, I think one of the best things about Barstool is that it's an escape for its fans. People come to us because they're looking to get away from their everyday life. They want a laugh. They want to hear something that's ridiculous. It's not a
0: reality check. It's
7: not a reality check. They're not looking for a serious opinion on what's happening in news or culture. Mm. What they're looking is for satire and humor. And so what I believe is that in an era where things are even more tense than usual and everything is very polar and black and white in terms of what's right and wrong. Mm -hmm. Barstool sits in a place that's an escape
0: and that's important for us with our fans. We were just talking with Larry Haverty about what's going on in the media space. Lots of M&A going on, obviously. Comcast trying to buy Sky, the government appealing the AT&T Time Warner Mm -hmm. merger. Everyone's trying to fortify themselves against the likes of these digital players, new technology. What's your take on Netflix and the streaming services? Are they your friend or your enemy.
7: You know, we're in a little bit of a different spot because we're growing very, very rapidly. We're very opportunistic. We are seeing incredible, incredible engagement from an audience that's very loyal to our brand. Mm -hmm. In our case, you know, Netflix is very threatening if you have a traditional media company based on a very traditional business model. We don't have that, right? We have a very diverse business. We have a very robust commerce business. We have an advertising business. We have a pay-per-view business. We have a boxing business. We have a live events business. So in our case, Netflix represents a potential for long form content, very premium content that we haven't yet explored. And we may or we may not do so. And it may even be a partner one Sure, day. exactly.
1: And that's it for this episode of What You Missed This Week. If you like this podcast, make sure to subscribe and rate us wherever you listen to podcasts. And tune in every weekday to our Daily Market Close show from 3.30 to 5 p.m. on Bloomberg TV and from 4 to 5 p.m. streaming on Twitter. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend.
0: Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor,